And uh, as I think um, alluded to this morning by several people, it's been a very eventful year. And um, lots of things happened in the lives of us as um, believers. And we're not immune from the trials and afflictions of life. And I wanted to speak this morning on that theme. But uh, first of all, just greetings to one and all this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus. And uh, let's open a prayer before we handle the word of God. Lord, we do thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy, Lord, which is ever evident and is abundant, Lord, even in these days, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in the lives, Lord, of individuals here, Lord. And uh, we are very grateful, Lord, for your guiding hand in our lives. We're grateful, Lord, even when you correct us, Lord, and, and put us straight, Lord, because as a loving parent, Lord, as a loving father, it's for our own good. And uh, we just, um, we want to commit ourselves to you this morning. And uh, we want to be attentive to what you have to say to us in your word. So give us grace, Lord, to, to uh, pay attention to your word and grace to um, be obedient to it. And um, we just uh, commit it into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. We know, Lord, that your word says that it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the, the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. Amen. On the last few occasions I've had the opportunity to preach. I've spoken on various psalms, and um, I want to continue in that vein this morning, and I want to have a look at Psalm 3. And I've called this um, sermon, God in the Turmoil. And some of what was said this morning, I think, as I indicated already, lends to that. I was going to mention this morning what Ella mentioned about Neil Engelbrecht. And um, my memory of him is somebody like Nathan, a big, strong, young guy, healthy and well. But his life has turned around completely. And um, he's in the midst of what we would call turmoil. And in Psalm 3, I think we get a lot that will teach us about the turmoil of life and how to handle it and what to do. In fact, if you look at the title of that psalm, it says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So that sets the scene that we have a father who has to actually flee from his own son. And there are lots of things that happen to us. That better be a fairly serious thing I'd put to you to have to go through. But this is an actual account. And when we see it and read through it, we'll learn something. We'll learn something from the background to why it happened. And we'll learn something about the reaction of David and what he did when he was in that situation. And the same God who was there in that time is the same God who is here now. And um, we too can draw on David's example. Uh, for life situations now that face us. So, what do we do when we have to face great calamity or chaos? Or those things that we don't expect or don't want happening in, in our lives. And as I said, we're not immune from disaster. Christians are not immune from trials in the spiritual or in the physical sense. And, uh, you know, we suffer the same as the unbeliever in many ways. But something sets us apart and something differentiates us. And it's how we actually do it and how we handle those things that come across in our lives to, to bring turmoil and 
and stress and chaos. You know, there's some commentators in the world, and I've heard it said that at any time in life, or any time in the world, that the world as we know it is only three days away from total collapse. And things could change very quickly. And if you think what would happen if, um, I don't know, if a couple of meteorites hit some satellites and the whole internet system went out, or if a nuclear weapon was launched, or if there was a, some form of attack, or whatever. Many things. We could go from a situation of being able to go to a supermarket and, and um, buy food, to a situation that's completely the opposite, where we're actually in deep trial and starvation or whatever. So things can change that quick in the eyes of the world. But in the lives of a Christian, we can be up on the mountain, and we can be down in the valley very much like that. So things can change very quickly as well. And, um, you know, that's a sobering, a sobering thought. There's some people here this morning who are suffering and who are in grief and trial, trial and stress. Many of us could find ourselves in the same situation in 2020. And the probability is that we're not going to go through this life unscathed and untouched by circumstances. Because we live in a fallen world. And, uh, you know, there are a lot, a lot of different aspects that are playing out in the spiritual, in the natural. We know that Satan, we have an adversary. And 1 Peter 5, verse 8, talks about him being us to be sober and be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we have an enemy on one side. We have just the natural circumstances of a fallen world. We also have a Lord who wants to test us, but not in a negative or in a, in a bad or in a sadistic or any evil way. It's for our good. He tests us because he refines us. And he wants to see us perfected in our faith. And we want to be advancing all the time. You know, and it says in James 1.12, Blessed is the man that endured temptation, or we could say trial, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord had promised to them that love him. So there's a testing aspect of all the trials that we experience as well. How we handle them, what we learn from them. You know, do we come out as the, I think you've heard the expression, better or bitter? And, um, you know, that's a good question to ask. So what can we do? I mean, I've just come up with some, some things that are pretty negative. I don't want to be too negative this morning. I want to, to be positive and encourage people as well. But what can we do when brothers and sisters in the Lord turn against us? That's a reality that happens. There's divisions in churches. People fall out. What does a pastor do when his flock turns against him? That happens more often than perhaps you would think. What can we do when our siblings turn against us? What can we do when our mate, our life's mate, or our children turn against us? What can you do if your employer turns against you and, and uh, you find yourself in a difficult spot? What can you do when you face financial ruin or poverty? Or as we heard this morning with um, the, our young friend, Neil, what can we do when we have to deal with sickness and death in our lives or in the lives of a loved one? Or one that's just as real? What can we do when our soul itself acts up against us, when we actually experience depression, fear, or anxiety? 
uh, we see ourselves perhaps as worthless and useless for the Lord. All those things are real. Now you can make that list as long as you wish. And um, as I said, I don't want to appear negative or discouraging in, in this introduction, but it is the reality of life. And um, it will be like that until the day we see Jesus face to face when we, we go to be in glory. Amen. We're all going to face challenges. So. And uh, you might you know, follow those questions with another question. That question would be, well, what can we do about it? And um, what do we do when we're caught up in such circumstances? Or how should we handle ourselves as Christians? And, um, you know, Psalm 3, as I mentioned, that's a, that's a true life account of one who would be regarded as a hero in the Bible. And, you know, there's uh, a lot could be said or preached on about David, both negative and positive. But it does say he was a man after the Lord's heart, after God's own heart. And, uh, you know, we think about David, think just in the context of this Psalm 3 here, that David himself, he was for many years a powerful ruler. You know, and we could read in the Bible here, in the Old Testament, about his military exploits and his conquests and how the enemies of Israel were, were put to flight during his, his reign. And he was renowned. He was renowned by those around him, by nations around him. And, you know, he experienced what we might say nowadays, life at the top. But we also read that he let a spiritual guard down. And a time came when he was idle, absent from the battlefield, uh, it describes in the word, and he gave in to temptation and he sinned with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And we know we read the account that in an attempt to cover up his sin, he ended up sending an innocent man to his death. And he only repented of the sin when he was confronted by the, the prophet Nathan. And, you know, how many of us have found ourselves in that situation where we try to hide our sin or bury our sin, only yet to be found out and caught at a later time? So, this is David, the mighty man of Israel. Now, he only repented when Nathan confronted him. And, you know, the, the judgment was from Nathan that the sword would never depart from his, house, his household. And it's, it's not much different today when you think about it because there's a great price attached to sin. Now, if you look at some of the terrible events that occurred on David's watch that perhaps follow on from that sin... Bathsheba's child died. David's oldest son, Amnon, raped his half-sister Tamar. You know, the Bible's not sugar-coated. It's pretty uh, in-your-face in some of these accounts. Tamar's brother Absalom, who's mentioned in the header of the psalm, murdered Amnon. And Absalom himself fled into exile for a period and when he returned, David refused to see him for two years, it says in the account. So Absalom being resentful of his father and his, hard, his father's handling of all the matters that preceded, and helped by his own charisma and charm, which is a dangerous thing, his appeal, 
he built up a following. And um, you could say, does not similar things happen nowadays where we're attracted to the externals of an individual and to his charisma, his or her appearance or whatever, only to find out that it's false. <coughs> so Absalom with cunning and deceit and in getting numbers around him, he put a conspiracy in place. And the type of conspiracy was, which was to overthrow his father, you know, the end result would have been that David would have been done away with. David and those perhaps loyal in his inner circle would have been done away with. So this is what David's facing, you know, as we lead into the psalm, that um, his very life is on the line. So humiliated and shamed, David actually leaves. And uh, you see here when you read in the background that he was abused by those who were his former supporters. He was spat upon and objects fired at him and he had various forms of taunting he experienced. This is a man who slew a giant and who was a hero of Israel. So things have changed very quickly for David. Many who thought he thought who was, were, were his supporters turned against him. So just imagine being overthrown by your own son. What that would mean and the, the shame and the humiliation that would bring in the eyes of people around you. On any level, you have to say David was in turmoil and in strife. And uh, you know, if you wanted to, I, I did it yesterday to get the full background to that psalm. You could read 2 Samuels chapter 11 to 18. It's a long read, but there's an awful lot of confronting stuff in there. And... Uh, the intrigue, the deception, the disloyalty, the evil, the murder, every bad thing you can think about is actually reflected in those chapters. And it's quite eye-opening. You could look at David and say, if a man like David felt so in so many ways, and certainly wasn't a good role model as a father, yes, he was still a man after God's own heart, then there must be hope for all of us this morning. And that's a, that's a good thing to take away that if someone can fall as low as David and still be, be special in the eyes of the Lord, then it's, there is great hope for us. So I wanted just to read through Psalm 3, and then I just want to reflect on a few of the verses. So reading in verse 1, it says there, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, Salah. But thou, O Lord, had a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up, of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Salah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me. O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Silah. So let's consider that psalm, what it actually means for us. And I always take a point of saying that when I'm going through something like this, this is very much for me as well, so I'm preaching to myself. But um, I've fallen down in many areas and I need to do 
what this psalm tells us to do also. So it may appear, when we look at verse 1, that David's stating the obvious. Lord, how they increase that trouble me. Many are they that rise up against me. When we think about it, the Lord knows everything. He knows all the circumstances and situations in our life. But there's something different when we verbalize it and bring it before the Lord. It's more for us, as much for us as it is for, for the Lord, that we actually can speak these things out. And, you know, after all, we were all created to fellowship with the Lord. You know, we fellowship in times of joy, and we fellowship in times of trial, when we have needs, when we want to intercede or look out for others, whatever, we go to the Lord, fellowship with the Lord. That's what we're made for, and that's what he desires of us to do, and it brings him joy. It's good for us to minister to the Lord, and it's good for us also to be ministered to by the Lord, to have a two-way flow. Amen. Now often, in our natural state, it seems it's much easier to go and talk to somebody else first. And we're all guilty of going to confidants or friends, whatever, and telling them about our situation, perhaps before we, actually, we brought it to the Lord. And it really is a no-no. We should bring things to the Lord first. And it is stating the obvious. I remember, and uh, some of my brothers and sisters who used to be in, in Waverley Christian Fellowship many years ago, I remember Kevin Connor. I remember one thing he said that stuck in, in my mind, and he was talking about situations of counselling. And when people come to him and they asked, came to him and asked for advice or for prayer, and his first question was, well, how many days have you brought this before the Lord first, before you come and spoke to me? And I think if somebody asked you that in a counselling session, you might be pretty confronted, because especially if you didn't do what he'd asked. So we go to the Lord first. So we can... Boldly, just disclose and call out to the Lord whatever is going on in our life and whatever our need is, and He hears us. And that's a wonderful thing. That's another way of what it means to lay our burdens at the cross. That we bring our issues and our problems, our sin, or whatever it is, we lay it before the cross, leave it at the cross, leave it with the Lord. And you know, in doing that, we are disarming the enemy. So it's it's a it's a good approach and a good thing for a Christian to, to go to the Lord first. We see in verse 2, Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. What comes after me there is that people can be very, very hurtful. And um, sometimes the words of people, friends, family, even brothers and sisters, can be very hurtful. The thought I get from that, it's not our place to say what somebody's destination is, you know, whether they're going to heaven or to hell. That belongs to the Lord. But it is our job to share the gospel, to encourage, to exhort, to rebuke if necessary, to do all those things. And um, come alongside those that find themselves in that situation, but never to bring them down. Never to you know, say that God's abandoned them or say anything like that at all. That would be a terrible thing to say. You know, the thought comes to mind for a Christian. What's a terrible thing for a Christian? The terrible thing is a Christian to doubt your salvation. That's a, that's a bad thing. And it's something that um, would weaken you to doubt your salvation or to not trust in the Lord in that way. 
But I think in that verse here, what's been spoken of is a degree further, is to actually say to somebody that you're beyond the help of God or beyond his, his reach. And um, you, know, you may say something in anger, but that would be a terrible thing to say because we're never beyond the help of God. No matter how dire our situation is, we can always turn to him and he, he will always hear us. So, um, you know, we think of um, Jesus comes to mind. You can think of what happened to Jesus at the time of Calvary and then his crucifixion. You know, we know that the, he was taunted and he was um, abused by the, the Pharisees and by the, um, the, the council and by, by th- those around him. You know, you read, read Matthew 27, verse 43, it says, you know, this is the words of the people. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And what, perhaps, what's the ultimate thing that, and again, it was alluded to this morning in the communion message, what's the ultimate thing that Jesus would have experienced on the cross? A little bit further down, Matthew 27, verse 46, where it says, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, we should never be in a situation, and I don't think, you know, the, the scriptures talk about being in hell, being in heaven, being anywhere, but it's always being in the presence of God, that you can't escape it. Again, something we don't understand there, but for some moment or time, Jesus was forsaken by the Father. And it ties into to what was said there, that he, he became sin. And um, that led to a separation. And we don't fully understand it, but the depths of it and the gravity of it are, are intense. And, um, you know, will work out for eternity. David, you could say, he was taunted for his own sin and his failings because as we just went through there, he did a lot of very bad things and made some bad choices. And even when we experience great trial, if we're honest, we'd say that perhaps a lot of the situation we find ourselves in, we contributed to it, or we were part of the problem. But Jesus is different. Jesus was sinless. He never sinned. He did nothing wrong, yet he suffered everything on our behalf. And that's what makes Calvary different and uh, separates it. And it makes it so central to us as believers and as Christians this morning. In verse 3 it says, But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. Amen. Now, again, think of this in the context of being in trial and being in strife. What a wonderful thing it is to know that the Lord is our shield. He is the one that lifts up our head. You know, in Genesis 15, 1, I think it's the first reference to um, the shield. The Lord says to Abraham, this is before he became Abraham, after these things the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And in many of the Psalms we see similar references to God being a protector and a defender. Now men find glory in many things, power, fame, wealth, etc., but David found glory in the Lord. So not only was the Lord a shield for him, but he was his glory also. And, um, you know, if we can 
bring glory to God in the midst of chaos and strife. That is a, that's a wonderful thing. That must be very pleasing to the Lord that we could, that we could do that. That's something um, probably difficult to, to, to do in, in the natural view of things. But spiritually, even in the worst situation, we can still glorify God and bring him glory. Perhaps to put it into perspective, all of the things we suffer here, all of the negative things in this life, they're all passing anyway. And one day they will melt into insignificance when we see Jesus face to face. And um, I think that's always, that's probably one of the first things when you're in a, in a bad situation or you know, whether you've made it or whether somebody else has caused it or whatever, it will pass. And um, you know, one day it'll fade into oblivion to be forgotten about as we spend eternity in God's presence, the presence of our Lord. He lifts up our head and um, really means he's re- he will restore us to, you know, or he'll restore the one who's cast down to a position of honor. You know, if you look at Psalm 27, verse 5 and 6, it says, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock, and now shall my head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Or if you want to pick a, te- uh, a scripture from the New Testament, Luke twenty-one twenty-eight. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draws nigh. So again, another aspect or another way of looking at that um, things are coming to a conclusion in this world and the end may not be that far off. So the more chaotic and the more dramatic things go around about us, we can say, well, that's a sign the Lord is drawing nigh and be encouraged by that. Verse 4, I cried unto the Lord with my voice and he heard me out of his holy hill. Silah. I guess the thought that comes there is, are we desperate enough to cry out for God's intervention or cry out for help to him? You know, I pray silently a lot. I pray silently when I'm having a morning walk and or moments here and there. But there is something different when you actually cry out and when you, um, particularly among, among believers, when you, when you verbalize prayer in that manner and cry out to the Lord. It's a sign perhaps of our our desperation and our dependence on the Lord. And, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's something, I think, that catches the attention of our Lord. And perhaps it's the, the hard, one of the hard and most humbling things to do. But maybe it's one of the things the Lord desires to see us do the most. Again, because we were created to fellowship with him, that we would come to him first and we'll cry out and seek him first for help in our problems. You know, we often do everything to fix the situation in our own strength and we leave it to the last to cry out to the Lord. Again, it's putting the cart before the horse. It's, it's doing things in spiritually in reverse. And we should always go to the Lord first. And uh, I mentioned about 2 Samuel being the background to what's going on here. In 2 Samuel 15 Verse 25 and 26, there's uh, an interesting scripture. 
And it gives a good insight on David's walk with the Lord. And it says, And the king said unto Zadok, Carry back the ark of God into the city. And what was happening there was as David was escaping and fleeing, the priests were taking the ark with them. But David said, No, take it back. If I shall find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back again. He will bring me again and show me forth. And show me about it and his habitation. But if he does say, I have no delight in thee, behold, here I am, I let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. That's a very reverent attitude. If the Lord restores him, he will worship him. If he does not, he will worship him anyway. And uh, it's a bit like Job says, you know, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a very good attitude for us to have as well. That even, you know, as things don't perhaps pan out the way we want them, that we would still glorify the Lord and accept his will in a situation. You know, can we have that attitude when we don't get things our own way? That ark, that was the very presence of God. But David knew that whether the ark was with him or in its residence in Mount Zion, God st- could still intervene and could still assist him. You know, sometimes we just have to cry out and throw ourselves at the mercy of the Lord and just allow him to, to do us fit. The situation gets so desperate that there's nothing else we can do. Just uh, cry out in the Lord and say, Lord, I'll leave it with you. Please help. Verse 5 and 6. Again, you can see, if you follow, you see there's a sequence to this. I laid me down and slept. I waked for the Lord sustained me. That's a wonderful thing when you think about it, that with all that going on around you, and then having brought it before the Lord and crying out to the Lord that you could lie down and rest. You know, lack of sleep is a terrible and debilitating thing. And um, many times, even recently, I haven't slept because something's been on my mind. I've been in the wrong myself about something or I've been worrying about something and I haven't slept. You know, if I followed David's instruction, if I had truly left it with the Lord, I could have slept and I wouldn't have to put myself through, through such a um, trial. And that goes for all of us. You know, we need his peace. We need his peace so badly. That song, I wrote down a verse that comes to mind. What a friend we have in Jesus. And I think I mentioned before that was written by, written by an Irish man who had terrible things going on in his life, and he joined the Plymouth Brethren, and and uh, he wrote these words, which we're all familiar with: "What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit! Oh, what needless pain we bear! All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer." And um, there's a lot of wisdom in that verse and a lot of uh, good counsel and good advice that uh, we should let sink in when we sing sing it and something we should put into practice, all of us, I think, that would um, be beneficial to us. Consider even how the Lord sustains you when you're asleep. You know, when you're unconscious, you don't have control over, you know, your physical actions and you're out of it effectively. 
Yet in his mercy, he sustains you and keeps you alive. And by his grace, you wake up the next morning and you're alive to the world. You know, if God can do that, then God can work on your problems while you're asleep. And um, we often pray when we're praying you know, together to close the day out, that the Lord would minister to our spirits when we're asleep. And he can do that. He can actually tend to your spirit and uh, strengthen you when you're asleep. Your spirit is 24-7. Your body takes rest. Verse 6. It's on the topic of fear. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. And how easy it is to give in to fear. You know, although Absalom, again, if you read the account, I think he, he had 12,000 men at his disposal. And there was a big posse, you could say, on the heels of David. And yes, David says, well, I'll not be afraid. And uh, can we say that in situations when we're faced with trial, that we're, we're not afraid? You know, it's a good thing to be able to do that. He committed everything to God and had peace in the situation. Again, a couple of scriptures just to, to illustrate this. One, ones we know well, Romans 91, sorry, Psalm 91, verse 7 and 8. A thousand should fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. You know, we're protected. We have protection from the Lord. Or Romans 8, verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? When we have God on our side and we're walking right before him, we can say we're invincible. It's a true statement. That we truly walk with the Lord and we're truly in his will. And when we fear, except in the instance when we should fear God, you know, we're really sinning by unbelief. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. So, again, it's easier for me to say here, and it's a test for all of us, that we shouldn't be fearful. We should be able to trust in the Lord and should be able to, to um, hand things over to him and have the same peace that David had. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Now, in the Jewish way of thinking, victory could only be achieved if God fought for the armies of Israel. And uh, we could say that human strength is not enough. When we do things in human strength, who gets the glory? It's not God, it's we get the glory. And whatever short-lived glory that is, it's uh, fleshly glory. It's not the, the glory that God wanted or desired. You know, in many ways, you can think of the, I just put a note here about the Israeli military, the IDF. You know, they have an air of invincibility. They're a very proud fighting force, proud in their own prowess and ability. But one day, that's not going to be enough. The day will come when Israel goes through great turmoil and eventually they will cry out to the one whom they pierced. You know, one day their army will not save them. And, um, you know, trusting in ourselves, trusting in, in strength, trusting in power, but not in the Lord is a dangerous thing to do. 
You can even think of Joshua 7 after the um, defeat or the overrunning of Jericho. But a very short time later at Ai, they were defeated by a small number of men because there was sin in the camp. So um, God wasn't fighting with them that, on that occasion. And they lost, and lost in a severe way. Now David asks the Lord for victory. Arise, O Lord. Again, we could put that into present day. We can actually ask the Lord for victory, no matter what the situation or what the challenge is. Ask him to give us victory. And um, arise, O Lord, is a call to battle. In Numbers 10.35, Moses says, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered. And let them that hate thee flee before thee. You know, you could verbalize that in your own way. You could, whatever that enemy is, whether it's drugs, whether it's some sort of addiction or something that's a besetting sin, you can ask the Lord to rise up and actually defeat it and, and to strengthen you against it and to, to um, have that enemy flee before you. You can apply those things in current day terms only. Not, it's not just a military or, or a battle situation in the physical, but also in day-to-day challenges and things that we have to face. We can do that. So David asked the Lord for victory. And so can we, because it's the same Lord. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen. Verse 8. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Now, whether it be salvation or rescue or whatever from turmoil and danger, or salvation in the sense of, of being born again, it only comes through dealing directly with the Lord. It's not something that, um, that manages. It's something of the Lord. And it's a good quality in that verse there, demonstrated by David, and that his prayer is not self-centered. He asks for blessing upon the people, and upon his people. Sometimes, if we're honest, we pray in a selfish manner and only home in on our own immediate needs and, and problems. It's a good thing to be unselfish and to pray for others also. And it's a challenging thing, but it's a good thing to do that. So what lessons can we learn from that psalm? I'll just put a few points down here just to, to um, take away. If you look at David, that even though he's, he's facing a great trial in his life and his position as king is on the line, out of all of that he creates a psalm of praise. So can we turn around a situation of testing and of trial and bring glory to the Lord through it? And the answer has to be yes, depending on how we handle it. We notice in there that David never responds in anger or bitterness or blame towards the Lord. And that's something we've all been guilty of from time to time, that we blame God or blame others for the situation or the trials we face. And David doesn't do that. Now, although in the natural we can see that David himself, he may not have felt confident, but he certainly had confidence in the Lord and he knew that the Lord was above and beyond all the circumstances that he was facing. He knew that it was the Lord who delivers and not men. So how bad is the very situations we're facing this morning compared to David's? It could be, but more likely than not, it's not. As I said before, the same God that delivered David can also deliver us from our situations 
and our trials also. Even in the worst situation we can imagine, it's nothing for the Lord. Nothing's too difficult for him. I think we mentioned that at a prayer meeting the other week from, from Jeremiah. Is anything too difficult for thee, the Lord who's created the heavens and the earth? We could also take from that that although there's a physical aspect of trial, there's also a spiritual aspect. For we know that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And we know that Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. So I wanted just to encourage people this morning that... Um, you know, a lot of what I said was, was perhaps maybe not words of joy, but it's real. And I want to encourage people, because I know there's people here today that are, that are in difficult times, a difficult situation, and as I said, we could also be very, very shortly, many of us who appear to be perhaps on the mountaintop at the moment or, or sailing along, but it can change very, very quickly. And when that happens, this is a very good psalm to come back to and to be encouraged by. Um, I got a present of a devotional from, from Nathan, and um, I've been really blessed reading this devotional. I just want to close by reading something that Spurgeon has to say. And the title of this morning devotion was, He Has Delivered, He Will Deliver. And the reference scripture is 2 Corinthians 1 verse 10. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. And Spurgeon writes, There may be many trials before you, but there is an abundance of mercy ready to meet those trials. Troubles that you do not know yet, as well as repetitions of those you've experienced, you will certainly encounter. But the Lord will give you strength and will continue to deliver you. As the eyes gradually fail and the limbs grow weak and the infirmities of age creep over us, we are likely to be distressed, but our Lord will not forsake us. When severe sickness invades our earthly bodies and our pains multiply and intensify, we wonder how we will endure. As we consider our death, we wonder how we will be able to bear our last hours. Be encouraged. He who has delivered and does deliver will continue to deliver. Even as the trial comes, the Lord will show you a way of escape. He has delivered you. Give him your gratitude. He is delivering you. Give him your confidence. He will deliver you. Give him your joy and begin now to praise him for mercies that he has yet to show you and for grace that you've not yet experienced that he will grant you in the future. And it closes with a prayer. Lord, you are my deliverer yesterday, today, forever. This side of heaven, I may never know all the times you saved me from death, tragedy, or a broken heart. I am so grateful that I can always depend on you. Amen. Imagine having a, a frame of mind where you would believe that trial and testing to come is something I can't say, and we, can, we can't, you can't say that you're welcome it in the physical sense, but you give gratitude in advance because there's going to be an opportunity for the Lord, the Lord to show his glory and his power at work and um, you know, for him to do something wonderful in your life and to, to build you up in him and uh, you know that's looking at it from a different direction as I said at the outset you know what happens it really depends how we how we deal with it and how we 
how we come out of it, but wouldn't that be a wonderful way to look at trials? That it's an opportunity for the Lord to show his power in your life and to, to give him gratitude in advance. Something I wish I could do and I aspire to do. So I'll just um, close with that this morning and we close in a, in a word of prayer. We thank you, Lord, for everything you're doing in our lives, Lord. Even the things, Lord, that seem painful, Lord, and, and the things that you allow, Lord, by your perfect will, Lord. You are sovereign. You are mighty. You are wonderful. And we are your creations. And, um, you know, Lord, we accept, Lord, your chastisement. We accept, Lord, your testing. We accept, Lord, your correction. And we thank you, Lord, that you even consider it worthwhile, Lord, that you do those things for us, Lord, that, that uh, we are your sheep, Lord. And um, we um, think, Lord, of those this morning, Lord, that are in a difficult situation, Lord. And we want to not be like the ones in verse 2, Lord, that, that would um, add to the problem, Lord, but be ones that will be encouragers and um, strengthen those that, whose hands are down and whose hands are flagging, Lord. So those this morning, Lord, in this church, Lord, and or in our families or in our um, circle, Lord, that are struggling and suffering, Lord, we, we lift them up before you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you bring them victory in their situations. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, it's...